Welcome to the New Models Podcast. On this episode, we speak with the writer and theorist Nora Khan. Nora has been on our guest shortlist since the beginning of New Models, and we reference her talk, Empty Models, Flattened Language, a lot. We also were in third grade together. More on that later. In this conversation, New Models talks with Nora about digital surveillance, a topic much of her work has addressed. But the pandemic age has brought another issue to the surface the underlying politics and pressure of distance working, socializing, and learning via platforms like Zoom, and the new questions it raises around academic institutions. I'm Lil Internet, joined by New Models founder Carly Busta and artist Daniel Keller. Let's get into it. On this episode, we are joined by the writer and critic Nora Khan, whose work is focused on the philosophy of emergent technology, particularly as it crosses over into culture. Nora is a professor at the Rhode Island School of Design, where she teaches critical theory and writing. She has worked with, at, and been published by the likes of Rhizome, the Venice Biennale, Google's Art and Machine Intelligence Group, the Guggenheim, and a host of magazines and conferences too numerous to list here. Last year, Nora put out a book-length essay published by the Brooklyn Rail titled Seeing, Naming, Knowing, which looks at the complex ethical questions raised by the now widespread everyday use of artificial vision and machine learning through the public sphere. Nora is also the first guest curator of The Shed, the prominent multi-use art space within New York's new Hudson Yards development, where she curated the exhibition Manual Override, which featured five contemporary artists critically engaging with technology. So Nora is someone we've wanted to have on this podcast since the very beginning of New Models. And if you've been with us for a while, you've certainly heard us calling on her work. Uh, But now we find ourselves in the middle of this COVID-19 spring where we're all in quarantine. And the NoraCon question matrix seems to be in high definition. So what better time to finally have you on now? Thanks, Carly. I'm thrilled to be here. Good to see you, Julian. Good Daniel. to see you too. Nora and I were in third grade together. <laughs> That's wow. true. Is that That's actually cool. true? It's Julie true. keeps saying that. It's a, like... Yeah, it's a um, it's yeah, that's a really great piece of trivia. We were in Miss Miss Hormel's <laughs> class. Miss or Mrs. or Miss. Um, we were in Miss Hormel's class at Williams School in Norfolk, Virginia. Yes. In like ni- 1992, 91. Um, we were in school together for like four years. It must, yeah, I guess so. When, what, what grade did you leave? <laughs> okay. Yes. But, okay. But the school, it, it was a Victorian, it was a, it was a school in a Victorian mansion and they used to manufacture peanut brittle in the basement and it was full of pedophiles. It's true. <laughs> you guys. I really, <laughs> And this is how I connected with Julian after 20 years. After, <laughs> after leaving fourth grade together, we reconnected online, realized we had gone to that school, and then started to piece stories together about 
this like mansion, this like haunted mansion we went to school in. Yeah. But I, my memory, wow. my memory of Jillian's really clear of wearing a black turtleneck with a gold chain and playing. Or maybe I constructed that. You're confusing my memory of you with your memory of me. <laughs> <laughs> Nora was wearing a black turtleneck with yeah, a gold chain. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Although I don't. Th- th- I don't know if this story is worth is good to kick off the podcast. But I think third grade was also the year um, that I drew a swastika over my face in all the yearbooks because I didn't know. Obviously, they don't teach World <laughs> War II or like the Holocaust in third grade, and I just like had grouped that symbol along with like the anarchy sign and like uh, maybe like a pentagram. Like it was just like bad symbols. I guess like punk 80s though. Yeah, you would actually see like. And I also remember I, I had like little plastic army men and, and, and at the time you could still get plastic army men where like the, the bad guys would had like actual Nazi symbols on the little plastic planes. <laughs> and I just, I just I, wanted to be a bad guy. You know? Well, a bad guy you are. <laughs> <laughs> I think you grew into it every time. But I remember you had that role in third and fourth grade. But yeah. I think I'd suppress the memory. But I it's coming about, back. I learned about the Holocaust early because of that experience. <laughs> well, thank goodness. Off the whole education. Thank goodness, yeah. you know, surveillance was a little different then than it is now. I mean, thank goodness it's not the social media age yeah. either. Back then. Anyways, I turned out to be a, a high-functioning leftist after my early, my early flirtation with far-right nationalism. Oh, right. I got over that. Third grade. <laughs> anyway, well, to move this conversation on, I thought maybe we could use a framing, Nora, that you first wrote to us in your notes. This challenge of finding space to critique new technology at a time when every single act of communication and synthesis is directly dependent on that technology. You know, we're sitting here talking to each other over Zoom. We're all well aware that Zoom is this kind of like shitty platform, but like who has the time to do an analysis? So could you maybe just like give us how the landscape looks to you? Sure. You know, knowing about the politics of surveillance isn't enough. Like knowing about data extraction, we can take that as a foundation. But Zoom flattens out how we produce work and evaluate, and it puts us in these grids that suggest equity. It forces us to be transparent to each other. So you can suddenly see into people's houses. People come from different backgrounds. The platform's designed poorly in that way. But then this becomes just like a design problem, right? Like, how do you redesign the platform to make it more equitable? I want to ask a naive question. What is the inherent politics of Zoom? What's built in politically to this platform? How would you explain it to someone who's maybe not familiar with tech criticism? So like, yes, you could make Zoom more accessible. You could keep your video off. You can conceal your home. But I think the question about Zoom in online learning is more powerful than we think about labor because over like the last month of like teaching online and hearing from lots of other precarious part-time faculty teaching online, using Zoom and using platforms like this puts the onus on teachers and faculty to creatively work around its restrictions to like augment the flatness of this platform to try and like embody what was happening in the classroom before to try and make like students feel like their investment as consumers is being met. And just in terms of criticism, what that means for me is like, what are the better kind of questions we can ask? Is it 
that the solutions are in the technology or not actually in the technology. We can go from asking, can you teach art online well to like, why isn't education free? <laughs> can, a, can a studio practice be perfectly embodied online to like, why does it cost $50,000 to have access to these studios? Can students like get their money back? And at most places, students have had these huge protests and put letters up to the administration. Most have said no, like, is the debt that they take on ethical? And like, then how do we abolish debt? So these like questions that are happening around like the online space should lead to like these bigger systemic questions. So Zoom is just like a way to think wider and more systemically about like how we work right now. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Concretely, do you think that there is, uh, I know this is a technological solution, but are there any alternatives platform wise that you think are somehow better for this? Uh, are better to use. Like crime if you want to, Crime Think has a list of them actually in their pandemic. Like, but that may be alternatives. Guide. But like, I wish that we didn't have to use Patreon. But any other creates another barrier of use. Yeah, I mean that's the thing is that you know network effect of these yeah. kinds of platforms are real. I mean, I think there's like a there's a question here of like how institutional power reifies itself online in part because of like this aesthetic of higher education online. And Carly, you asked about the aesthetics of COVID, which I would love to like talk about, like the bad aesthetics of the interface of why, why Zoom? Because it seems lo-fi and not threatening or invasive, which, yeah. is, in, which is interesting. But I think Ardi Virkan talked about this recently in a piece about like when post-internet popped up in 2008, there was this feeling of this revolutionary moment of like what it is not to be in a studio or have a, like a post-studio practice. So you had a kind of feeling of experimental education and surf clubs from people teaching each other and not meeting the institution. So I think there is a fear from the institution that their video platforms can't like contain the anarchy of like what working online could mean. Like people could meet in Minecraft or I can meet my students in Animal Crossing and we could never see each other again. And that would still, I would, and my students would control that space. As professors and artists are thinking about like, how do you bring sculpture back into people's houses where you don't have a kiln? How do you have schools transfer this idea of embodied education online? I think you will have a lot of faculty trying to find flexible, exciting ways to do that. And I think you'll have a lot of schools take credit for that. Um, and I think higher education will definitely abuse a lot of like the adjuncts who are trying to field this time of like doing emotional work with students without direction or pay. Um, but the upside is the potential in that students can think about the relationship to the school away from the school and they can think about themselves as consumers paying for this rarefied education and then think about what art is going to mean after they graduate. Like it can be publishing, it can be podcasts, it can be everywhere outside of the institution. That's what I think people will hopefully be thinking about this summer is like, do I come back in the fall? And like, why? Why do I keep going into debt for what? I mean, I mean it's I, too harsh, but. I also, though this doesn't seem too cool either, that there's companies now that kind of do certification of people's skills and abilities outside of just their degrees or hmm. what school hmm. they went to. And then, I mean, you can easily imagine 
just the neoliberal distributed version of education, a non-institution mm-hmm. version. Private companies that rigorously test like job applicants to meet certain standards, how they get the education doesn't matter. And then education suddenly just becomes this distributed private or autodidactic uh, enterprise or practice. I mean, I think mm. though that that doesn't acknowledge one thing, especially in art school, is that you have the technical skills and then you have the access to a network. And usually what people are paying for when they're getting MFA degrees is they want to have access to this painter or this writer or this critic or that used to be the way it was. I mean, Mm -hmm. those networks have also degraded quite a bit in the past 10 years and are much more like dark forest and they can just as easily find anybody um, on Discord now. But, you know, when we think of who gets jobs and who gets to work as who's assistant, who gets shows, the way you get shows Mm -hmm. isn't like you're a technically good painter and somebody writes a good review in a vacuum, it's like, oh, a gallerist over, I mean, like as though that network even will still exist. I mean, I guess the question is just how do those social networks materialize themselves online and how can you in good conscience gatekeep those for like similar prices when you know Mm. that the cost of sustaining them isn't that, I mean. And I mean, to to look big though, it's like, right, it's like we don't want the institutions to fall, right? To be gone, right? Like that, the alternative, if, if they're gone, that's also the vacuum's going to be filled with very likely something really shitty. But at the they same time, the institutions are, right, they're bloated. They're like capitalist institutions, basically. Yeah. So, mm. I mean, what's the play? Okay, I have a solution. Hear me out. <laughs> 5G plus VR, everyone's in VR helmets. We're doing VR chat. Anywhere you want to go, you can go to the, the garden outside because you got that 5G and you have motion <laughs> capture. You're embodied. If you want to, you can wear an avatar. You can do um, ceramics. You can do VR ceramics. So everything <laughs> is taken care of. That's what you get. That's why you get, you pay the big bucks for the tuition. You get the, the <laughs> nicest VR. You get the virtual VR. campus. <laughs> yep. I mean, I've been looking. That's... That's hilarious. I mean, like, I'm, I'm 80% kidding, yeah, but, but I do honestly think that there's something there's something there. <laughs> if, if the embodiment is an issue, there's probably some technological uh, yeah. some, some workaround. But students yeah. will clone the campus, right? They'll go into class, they'll record all the data oh, yeah. that hits their helmet, and they're going to sell that on the deep web so people can take... Like really be but so much the, of those, so much the of these networks also rely on transgression and transgression in real space in art school, in particular, yeah, especially in art school. Especially yeah, in art school, I hear, I hear. And you know that's how power is conferred and and shared and built. I mean, maybe you find a way to corrupt. Like, I'm going to have a school. I'm going to have a private school of transgression. <laughs> <laughs> online little online. internet's online school of transgression. I, I love it. Microtransgression. But to this ideation of this VR school with the that Dan just brought up, I mean, wouldn't there still be a hierarchy or cult of personality within VR the same way that you have in art school? Like you still have charismatic oh, yeah. people. Yes. Right. I, I'm okay. not solving art school. I'm just <laughs> merely solving quarantine school. Just quarantine. Art school, school is still 
you know, a crucible. To but say to- <laughs> Men in art school for one second, you also need the chance encounter. And I think this is what drove the like art mm. world or the, the street level art world, at least during the oddies and early tens, is the chance that you're going to run into that person that you are attracted to or that is revered by your social group at an opening, that you may have proximity to Badu or whoever, you know, in through through your <laughs> relations. I mean, that was part of that engine and you don't have that in mm. VR. I don't think. What's been, I mean, what's been interesting is how schools have been replicating their campuses because of the students who were already accepted for next year. So uh, Harvard and I think like Columbia, Harvard definitely completely redid its campus like brick for brick in a virtual space so students could walk around and go into a different, there we and go. Okay. but which is, what's interesting is like in certain schools, certain campuses, I recognize the school's that have like their history buildings are like falling apart, but their science buildings are like beautiful. They're beautiful. They look, it looks all the same in right. the virtual campuses that they've set up. So there's ways of Carly, like you, that term, the chance encounter is like erased or taken out. I mean, can that actually be, I think that can be replicated in a digital space. We just go into the DM. Yeah, slide, true. Just, yeah. just slide in like, I, yeah. Well, I mean, MIT did things like trying to make classes open to people, right? And maybe that's be the way it will be. a very specific they'll, type of person. There'll be a lot of advantage. extra virtual classes. Maybe they'll be at a very affordable rate, right? And then they'll be the real thing, which yeah, of course will be a premium product. Take like, without getting a real degree, you can take like a Harvard Business School course for like, I mean, it's not that expensive. I think I it's mean, like... MIT courses are like 50 bucks. Oh, okay, right. Then, well, there you go. To get the certificate. But yeah, you go to MIT to meet Jeffrey Epstein, obviously, <laughs> right? You don't, or yeah, HBS, so, I mean, yeah. yeah it's hard <laughs> but I think to get the, the difference is something you identified in when we were speaking earlier, Nora, which is like everyone in America who goes to college knows that great feeling of this fresh start. You leave your high school behind. You leave the traumas of home behind. Mm-hmm. You're on this campus. It's bucolic. And it does, I mean, I'm sure, you know, within a month, you know, drama <laughs> happens wherever you are. But I think there is a change in headspace and there is an equalizer that happens when you put everybody on a campus together. At, at first, for sure. I mean, like I remember my experience like as a poor student at one of these schools is like you start out with that feeling of equity within somehow like meritocracy is going to like equalize us if we I work really hard and I get straight A's whatever like it'll propel me to something but then slowly over four years all all of the outside benefits of where people come from and how they're raised the connections they have that starts to creep in as you move towards graduation where people go after it also how you navigate the politics of the school too. Like I know a lot of students who are from maybe lower income backgrounds and never approached a teacher, never go to office hours because they think it's terrifying one and then somehow impinges on like the professor's time. But students who are more comfortable just asking for that grade raise or asking for a paper to be read again, like that's a very different kind of social push. There's a parent saying like, you need to go talk to that person and have them revise it somehow. Like so that of course it's like a social, it's a political space. It's not neutral. And how would you collect yeah. how would you collect rich kids to help <laughs> propel your career forward? <laughs> <laughs> the virtual campus. There's definitely some I, professional rich kid collectors in colleges. <laughs> I mean, I worked at Harvard Business School for five years as a case study writer. And we worked, the professor I worked for, she worked on the history of leadership. And I wrote case studies around 
partly like the start of Silicon Valley, but then also just like on the ethics of entrepreneurship. So I absorbed that like business academic oh, wow. language and which I think propelled me to be a critic. I didn't, I was like, going to lose my mind if I didn't write about that. But even within that space, it's people come to schools like that for connections. And I think something about the virtual space will make that harder to do. And so then it maybe it's about how you argue and critique and talk to other people about it. What are some specific things that you think could just be improved right off the bat? Just interface level. I mean, maybe it's like as simple as uniform backgrounds, like school uniform, like the same reason why there were school <laughs> uniforms, there's some sort of neutralizing. Mm. Um, I do like the thought of us all wearing uniforms on, I don't know what that uniform would be or Zoomiform, but. Um, <laughs> Zoomiform. Seems, Zoomiform, this seems, yeah. this seems like a startup, folks. a startup. App. I think they're like a, definitely some kind of cozy core, definitely a, like a snuggie, <laughs> Harvard snuggie, et cetera. <laughs> Wouldn't it be more though, like the t-shirt with the tie painted on it or something like the simulation <laughs> of the simulation? Like, right, exactly. I mean, actually, can we, you know, um, one another comment that you made that I think is applicable here is how the simulation starts to produce reality. So I think we already simulate the future in our minds. We've all been thinking about simulations really like fluidly at scale in the last few weeks. So understanding how simulations are both a product of mathematical knowledge, but then also ideas of how people move through the world. And again, a few weeks it went from thinking of herd immunity was a good idea to social distancing to wouldn't it be great if we knew how many people are sick so we could actually have good models. <laughs> <laughs> and wouldn't it be great to be able to model cultural behavior or like religious behavior within a simulation, the fact that people do not act rationally. None of these things are factored in to like the, the models that we're using. So what is really exciting for me right now is how people are understanding that simulations are something that can be constantly revised and that there should be more people figuring out and talking about how they are built and like how we think about human behavior. Well, I mean, uh, assuming you can model, accurately model something as complex as human behavior is hubristic in the first place, I always think, and COVID is sort of revealing that. I mean, I always think like Bratton's plans, et cetera, that would rely so much on uh, amassing data and really believing in our models. I mean, COVID shows how, I mean, how much randomness can totally uh, break a model and how often they have to be updated, how unreliable they actually are. I mean, that's I just don't a, understand mm -hmm. what the alternative is to that. And I also think that probably people who are making the models understand statistics and probability. Of course, they're inherently, there's a, a range of outcomes within the model. I think they understand how ineffective models are. You know, they can put a number to how ineffective they are, but people expect them to be perfect. And I think mm. there's this gap in the perception of what a model is. But, you know, without trying and tuning those things, you're not going to get somewhere better. We have to we have to have models. I don't know. Well, <laughs> I, right? No, I, I like your devil's, your devil's advocacy. It's very consistent. I've been listening to you for a long time on the, on the podcast. So I'm like, <laughs> well, <sorry. laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to suggest that statistics is like a conspiracy or that we don't need models in simulation. Of course we do to like, meet like basic human health needs. You know, if a hurricane is coming, we figure out how to 
arrange for disaster relief after a hurricane. But I think what's interesting is that simulations or simulation as a science are so often not questioned. So the presentation is of an objective truth, even though it is just a prediction. But then all real action in response is in response to a prediction. Right. So the prediction should be refined constantly and have more people than the scientists in the room. And also just the reaction is still an interpretation and like there's just this other layer of translation of the data that goes into the model, the data that comes out of the model, how you interpret and implement that. And there's just so many, it's not really the model dictating it at that point. It's all these other things. Right, right. but could you potentially model people thinking that quarantine is against their rights to their freedom? I, yes. feel like you could I feel like you model could very that. easily model that. I feel like you could model that. You could yeah. model people going to church. You could model, like I'm from Bangladesh, people in the first week, even though it was very clearly stated that social distancing was necessary, people pray five times a day. Right. And that's that's it. They, that's a much more important thing than social distancing in that context, whether it's um, right. unhealthy or not, or de- devastating or not, they're still going to do it. I think the officials very much understand irrational behavior. They are factored in. But mm. yeah, again, the issue is in the implementation of how to actually influence behavior when you know that people are irrational. That's a whole mm. other science. I mean, carrying over from something we were saying um, on the last topsoil, Dan, you mentioned this too, um, is that resiliency is now being incentivized, right? And the basic core resiliency is like, there has to be that variable built into the model. So, right, Right. it has to be like a, I mean, I remember this article published in Grey Room, like, uh, I don't know, five or six years ago about how there was the switch, the difference between the premillennial and postmillennial time is return to baseline versus return to homeostasis and baseline being being like, we're always going to return to 10. And then Mm. being like, no, we're always going to return to a point where the variation should only oscillate between plus one and minus one. And I think we're seeing, and COVID is is a force multiplier for this, that models have to have a resiliency format. They cannot be the return to baseline format. I think what's interesting is, I don't know, maybe this is too big of a leap, but education very much functions on the return to baseline model. It's like the teacher is the power PowerPoint, the teacher is the disseminator of information, the students are graded on the information, the teacher mm-hmm. teaches them, and they either pass or fail. And it seems like there's a real mismatch now between this variable resilience type modeling and an education style that still seems very 20th century. And I'm mm-hmm. sure people like yourself and other educators of our generation are trying very hard to come up with different models of teaching that will, like, what would a resilience model of education be? What would a resilience model of grading or mm-hmm. of moving somebody along in a pedagogical system? Um, have you had any conversations about this change in terms of education or is this too left field of a leap? No, I mean, I have conversations with myself all the time about <laughs> this. I don't know how many colleagues I'm having. For, for myself, the first thing I said is everyone passes. If everyone passes, what's the new conversation we can have here? The framework of the classes now that isolation produces so many other physical and psychological problems. Like everyone is (laughs) going to be like going up and down into next fall. So if we take that flux and the fact that people change constantly and their being present isn't an indication of character, it's not an indication of willpower, it's that there are other pressures on them. That changes the class entirely. 
I mean, I guess there's also the question of what skills is education even teaching for, right? In a workforce that's rapidly changing. And we all know that school, at least up until age, say, 17 or 18, is as much of a social training mechanism as it is teaching real skills or real knowledge. And it would be interesting if there were a metric that were just attention-based, right? Like your, your grade is correlated to the amount of attention or involvement energy you put into your studies. But of course, this is thinking in terms of a private school that can set its own its own rules and regulations and funding. And that, of course, doesn't work with a public funding model, which we all want, where schools should be cared for by the government. I mean, you know, there's lots of levels of complexity here. But to think granularly, like I do, I just read that Michael Sarah Thumbelina book. And, you know, you hear this guy who's like, he must be in his 90s now, but he was in his 80s when he wrote it. And, you know, he's this esteemed philosopher, yet he gets in front of his undergrads. And it's like, they're totally not paying attention to him because everything they need to know is in their laptop, is in their hands already. So what does he have to give them? And I guess it's a problem that we've been, you know, thinking through for a long time. Uh, COVID has just really focused us on this question. I think a lot of teachers are probably deluding themselves that they got up there and their students were in the room. So therefore they were kind of paying attention. I mean, case in point, all of us were on this Corona scene, massive Twitch that Joshua Citarella hosted um, when we all first started going into lockdown. And how many of us were there, like 15? 17, 17, 17 people. 17 people plus like a <laughs> pop-in from David Adler. And, you know, we're sitting here for like two hours trying hard to like give attention and kind of think through the arguments. And I went back and I watched the relay of it so I could see the comments. And like in a way, what was being produced in that space was more interesting to me than I think anything any of us said. And of course, you know, somebody was like, estimate, what do you guys think the like collective student loan debt is of this grid. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that. I saw that. It hurt. I hurt. That really hurt to see that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I loved that. I, I always go after Twitch streams and especially with Josh's Twitch streams to see what people have been making of the conversation because that's a good clue what's coming across or not. Right. Um, Fred Moten and Stefano Harney have a really powerful book called the undercommons in which there's always another space that's happening outside of the official conversation or Mm -hmm. there's like a side conversation where the actual like meaning is being constructed. What was interesting about that panel, at some point it turned to like, what's the role of art and art criticism? I really want to see critics use that seeing and analytical power to help people think through the internet to make sense of images of power and protest and like visual narratives that organize how to act or not act. I think that's the critic's role right now. Maybe maybe this is going to derail it, but just before we pivot from education, I just wonder, like, do you know how like K to 12 education is going? Is, Is this the same level of Zoom reliance? Is it something different? It's like almost everything has from the impression that I get been translated to Zoom. And why Zoom instead of Google Hangouts? Where did Zoom (laughs) even come from? It's a, a conspiracy, right? Definitely. Yeah. Some some, some type of it's like word of mouth or... marketing or something. Like it came out of nowhere. It does the same thing as Google Hangouts, and I just don't understand. Like I do know, like a lot of universities, they have contracts with Zoom, mm. so right. they. I think it's easier to make it proprietary mm. to that school. So it is a way to like mediate, which uh, institutions they're struggling to find these places where they can tame the anarchy of the internet, and part of that is finding really boring portals. 
It's like the lack of imagination or like Artnet or other outlets being like digital gallery hop with us or come see our (laughs) Hong Kong Art Basel art show. And I mean, I'm not asking you to badmouth any people that you may work with or whatever. I mean, it's it's like an industry-wide phenomenon. It's a global phenomenon. It's a capitalism-wide phenomenon. But like what Mm -hmm. what with this, like what can we make of this? Just like this horrible, try-hard assertion of boring control that every single person is tuning out. But what I think is most surprising is no matter the institution, no matter the space, whether it's an art or it's it's a school or it's a corporation, the language of the email is the same, which almost makes you start to think that there is no difference between any of that. But like the reason that people don't cut their laptop, part of it is like the harnessing of fear and a rise and grind mentality. Mm-hmm. You're going to fix your life right now or you learn a new skill. And then tapping also into the fear of unemployment. Um, I know some schools have sent like overly detailed emails three or four times a day with like, we're thinking of you. We hope you're doing well. We have like made, and it's a corporation speaking as a person, showing that they care, but then also make sure you pay next month's. Totally. So it's like, it's this kind of at scale, you start to tune out, but it is a war of attrition. You just become like too tired to fight. But I really think looking at like the language of bureaucracy is really interesting. Do you have any specific examples of, could you like anonymize an email that you received? Because I'm pretty curious. Many of them are about like harnessing the radical imagination of designers and artists and creatives who are going to tackle COVID-19 with their like creative power, but not with any resources. That's the key thing is that creativity alone is what you're going to use to solve this crisis. Not money, not investment, (laughs) not like collective organizing in any way. It's your mind (laughs) that you're going to use to imagine your way out of crisis. Well, with every email being exactly the same, you can tell there's no radical imagination on their end. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I I mean, I see this all. I mean, everyone's at home, working from home, this rise and grind culture with pretty granular monitoring of people's actions and movement to make sure that they're not infecting anyone. I mean, in a way, it kind of sets up this system where every parcel of time it's either spent working for money or uh, selling your attention right. for, or, or providing right. your attention. And mm. it just becomes this like totalizing economy. I think, Nora, you sent to us this article about the coming mental health crisis. Even pre-COVID, the statistics for depression amongst freelancers uh, yeah. compared mm-hmm. to their counterparts at companies is insane. It's like uh, 86% of freelancers report depression. Compared to, I don't know, mm-hmm. 30% of people in regular jobs. Yeah, I think that piece, yeah, it was 85% yeah. of freelancers struggle from depression. And then there was another piece a couple of days ago that 30 million people will be part of this digital workforce, opposed to like five for working from home. And so it's going to be bad. It's going to be, it's going to be, but it's also not something that's being modeled for what are the cognitive effects of having people take all of the burden of precarity onto themselves as creative workers. And Mackenzie Work's new book, Capital is Dead, outlines this really nicely, that we're in the 90s, the hacker class was someone who was liberatory and was surfing the net and unlocking information and creating new worlds. But now it's a matter of proving yourself as this creative laborer who has to constantly produce new things to keep others' attention. 
yeah, I had a friend who recently was like, what if we never leave our houses? What if it ends, but we just don't leave, like we're trapped in this in some way, or that whoever is employing us finds some way to find a financial benefit of having us all working from home. That's also something to be thinking about is like, what, what if this is the new norm? Yeah, I mean, completely. Um, I mean, I did hear somewhere who was on Kara Swisher or something where after companies, after they show that they can successfully run their operations with a majority of the workforce working from home, how are they going to legitimize having real estate that can accommodate their full staff? That doesn't make sense anymore, right? Uh, mm. And so that there's going to be pressures from all directions. I mean, I guess... On the other side, you think it is one way to start having some kind of universal basic income for all freelancers, like you get your rent covered or covered up to a certain amount. And, you know, you could just imagine that removing a certain degree of precarity would significantly help a lot of mental health issues. I don't know. Of course, we say this living in Germany where whatever, like we see what our friends are going through in the States and it's like, wait, but it's possible to have a government that takes care of you differently. It is actually possible. I thought of this term today, you know, so much talk of techno solutionism right now. I was reading about like depression in the United States and amongst freelancers. And then I was like, whoa, like, the United States has actually always been really into narco solutionism also. <laughs> like just in terms of like the legalization of weed coinciding with the increase of like the digital freelancer and how much psychoactive like mood stabilizing or productivity enhancing drugs are prescribed in the United States. And it's a very American solutionism to have to this increasing problem of mental health. In, in mm -hmm. freelancers, we'll probably see even more of it. You know, like weed is an essential service in Michigan. <laughs> I mean, but seeds aren't. Right. Yeah, you, you can only buy weed seeds from the dispensary. That's the only seeds that are. <laughs> like any. Oh, right. You can only buy weed seeds, right? Yeah, but even tapping back into the origins of Silicon Valley as communes started to give over to like the Bay Area, the role of psychedelics, well, I guess like now microdosing is is more of a way to like manage your digital intake, how to like actually create boundaries if that is like even a thing anymore. <laughs> I mean, there has been community that, I mean, we have a nootropics um, channel on our Discord and like oh, just people being like kind of one of the strongest community threads because people are like, oh, like that's your stack. Here's my experience with blah, 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 blah. Like make sure you have it on empty stomach or I don't know. Well, like, I mean, it's like because personal... everyone's just trying to cope with yeah. like the reality we're yeah. forced into yeah. now. I mean, it's kind of like... Mean, the community, yeah. the discussion's kind of cute. We have like a little hobby of trying not to like um, get suicidal in our <laughs> digital freelance job, but like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's necessarily a good, I, I mean, yes, a good yes, thing yes, that it yes. even is necessary yes. to so many people. <laughs> yes, it's true. It's true. It's true. Um, but I mean, but I mean, blue light always was helpful too. I mean, there were like communities. Yeah, that was on blue more light. about recreation. That's true. This is more about like how do I function? Like pseudo spiritual exploration, but yeah, yeah. that's totally true. But, I mean, I, you wanted to pivot to something. Um, I think you, you were talking before about the bureaucratic language that everyone's deploying, and it's all very similar. It's also been noted in the press that the optics of this crisis are also so limited, right? When I think of 
events of this scale, like 9-11 or the Berlin Wall coming down or even the financial crash, we have iconic images that we tie to each of those, right? I mean, whether it's the mm. literal Berlin Wall or whether it's the Twin Towers or whether it's like white collar workers holding all their belongings in cardboard boxes coming out of Lehman Brothers. They're like images that Getty images couldn't have had before they happened. But I feel mm -hmm. like the whole COVID crisis, it's like we've had four stock images and they just keep on getting run again and again. It's like one with doctors in scrubs, one of empty public spaces, one mm -hmm. of refrigerator trucks, and one of like empty shelves. And like, that's, that's kind of it. And there's no visuality around this crisis. Mm. We're really like... And maybe like um, large Zoom grids. That's the other image of this crisis maybe. But yeah, what do you think the downstream effects of this lack of iconography will be? Yeah, I was going to add another image, the, the nurses with the face mask off at the lines on their faces. Another one, I think people are turning inwards very hard. I see a lot of people working, for example, playing Animal Crossing with a lot of passion or <laughs> playing Minecraft with a lot of passion and trying to recreate versions of the external world in these spaces. I think we're going to see a lot of people creating alternative spaces within the virtual that either replicate its like brokenness or what they would like after. I mean, I wonder if in some ways, though, it could be to our benefit in the sense that, you know, Bush had the Twin Towers image to rally like support around him. And Bush one had the end of communism as his images in the 90s to be like, yeah, look how great neoliberalism is or whatever. But I wonder, since there are no great images from Corona, if there's a silver lining there, that there aren't images now of the crisis. Therefore, it's, I mean, then I guess you have this lack of memory because you need images, you need monuments to have memory. So I just wonder about like the politicization of imagery and what images will be the ones that stand out as definitive of this time. Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. I feel like the courthouse or the, the picture in the Capitol building of the Republican-led mm -hmm. protest to open up America mm -hmm. again, if that seems sure. to be the defining one right now, mm -hmm. that's the first one with some action and emotion in it. But I think you already are seeing the fact that it can't be politicized Trump has not gotten any kind of poll bump from this. Right. There's nothing to really unite behind. And graphs, they don't convey the same type of thing as an image. So I think you're right that there's a silver lining there, for sure. Right. On the other end, the silence and the lack of visuality both are terrifying mm -hmm. because you can't see what's actually happening. As I've been walking around Providence, which is obviously empty, and looking at some of the traffic cams and 24-7 cams. I mean, there's no one on the ground to watch the police. There's no one on the ground oh, to right. like take that image. So that in that sense, the lack of visuality is a huge danger. Like mm -hmm. surveillance actually is important when it comes to state violence or to tracking like police violence. How often are you leaving the house, Nora? Are you are you actually inside most of the time? I mean I know I'm supposed to be like going out every day, but I'm I'm like kind of a internet person. So I like lose track of time really easily. So it is possible that two or three days pass. No, <laughs> no shame. I would, like, <laughs> if I didn't have a dog, I would absolutely have been in the same place for a long time. But right. I mean, but then there's also the feeling of like, like I wanted to really connect with this crisis in some way that I wanted to be on lockdown. I wanted to be performing. I wanted my life to change in a way that was correlated to the severity of this crisis or something. I understand the feeling of wanting to be part of performance of being in quarantine. I under, I get that. And 
finding it harder to like have distance from what everyone else is feeling. I have to like partition myself off to know what I'm actually thinking about anything because I'm taking in so much media. I feel like uh, I've had that same effect and it's actually sort of like nootropics. Like you have like, if you're like red pilled and blue pilled, it's like you have a, you're taking a stack every day and you kind of like, all that is, you know, yeah, you're trying to have like a balanced media diet, but then you sort of, a lot of nootropics, you're like, oh, maybe I forgot to take that. And you're not sure if you're like, your mood is because you forgot to take the thing or you took it. I really do feel that like I've taken too many red pills and blue pills and black pills and clear pills. And yeah, I don't know. Time is time has vanished and it's very hard to know <laughs> where your thoughts yeah, start and end. Has the crisis made you more assured with what you're doing or has it made you question it? I think for the first week I was definitely doubting and I still now I'm just like, I can't imagine writing about an artwork, not because I don't love the artists who I work with. Right. It's more that like I think people's work is going to change to respond to social crisis in some way that doesn't look like art. It's going to look like something different. And I hope I'm just so. trying to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, the pivot I kind of wanted to make is, uh, I mean, aren't we in a really revolutionary time where things could get extremely bad? I mean, isn't there a chance of greater inequality, greater precarity, loss of life on a massive scale. Um, There seems to be a breakdown in subject matter and approaches and ideologies that that were very clearly separated into left and right before this happened. And those barriers seem to be breaking down a bit as everyone leaves activism on a more individual scale and starts focusing on the macro issues at hand. And Nora, I wanted to ask you, like, I mean, how do you feel about this? That it's It almost feels like it's open season for ideas again, since all bets are off now on what needs to be done and what could happen. That's an amazing question. I think from day to day, I go back and forth between feeling this is an exceptional possibly revolutionary time on what, like in the morning and as the day goes, and then as the day goes on, I become overwhelmed with despair thinking of all of the different ways proto-fascist movements plus technology like fuse together. So if I stay before noon and that time in that space, I would say that the lack of preciousness, I think there's less patience for elitist language, theoretical language that is inaccessible, that enforce hierarchies or binaries between what access people should have to knowledge. What the internet allows us to do is like to create like a mash of hybrid theories into ones that's going to help us maintain and live something like a decent life. And I don't think that's going to come from any one specific ideological strain. I think it's going to be much as how we like experience the internet now, a mix and match of the ideas that are going to like help us live. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, also extending from that, I, I wanted to ask amongst people who are involved in sociopolitical discussion, theoretical discussion, there is this competitive element of having the best take and winning rhetorical battle, regardless which idea translates best when it comes to praxis. And oftentimes the winner is the one who can rigorously defend the argument based on theory, but we're dealing with a Mm. very present, immediate 
crisis. And I wonder if, I mean, I keep thinking perhaps the phenomenon of, say, what would be like woke shaming before. Maybe, though, the, the most important thing right now is to be aware of engagement that's coming from a place of competition, which I think is just endemic in, in all of the spaces of discussion about revolutionary or socio-political thought and theory. I would say a social norm, though, on the left. You don't engage in a yes and form. You engage in a, well, actually form. (laughs) And then there's a kind of meritocratic framework where the person who wins the argument is then like the one who should get the professorship or should get the grant or, you know, mm-hmm. it's a it's a long ingrained system of like winning on the well actually right. argument. But well actually arguments are really shitty in times of extreme crisis because you just need to brainstorm and build like have a more cohesive energy as opposed to one which stratifies. Right. But mm-hmm. like, do you see that, especially working in academia and being a critic, do you feel pressure to still perform that protocol or do you feel newly liberated or does this not really apply to you? Mm. I've really spent a lot of time in the last few years thinking about anonymous and collective criticism, like when I think of Chikun or other collectives that... Um, create theory in order to like perform social change. I think like my understanding of like rhetoric and performance and performance of like intellectual knowledge is moving hopefully away from that competition style that one is trained in when you train in theory. It's not useful. It's not interesting. It also doesn't like continue the conversation. It shuts down the conversation. Woke culture and cancel culture both like shut down people from entering what could be a complex conversation we all are coming into some sort of understanding of like truth at different angles or at different stages. And so that performance was really endemic to a time before this. For example, I'm not putting my name on a lot of the things I'm writing now. I'm just putting them out. And if anyone has read anything in Britain, they know that it's me just from the style, but <laughs> I, they're like, is this you? And I'm like, I don't know. And, <laughs> but it's, I'm really enjoying putting things out for other people to then have a platform to write through. That's so cool. So like, yeah. So my thinking is not, it's not important that my name is on it. Like, who am I if it creates like a space for other people to talk through and do things? So that's way more interesting to me than being the best rhetorical jouster. It's like memes though too. Like memes are anonymous, right? right? And like there must be, I've never started a successful meme, um, nor have I really (laughs) tried, but I can imagine the satisfaction of seeing your meme, you know, have all these iterations. I mean, I guess in a lot of ways, it's like that's what a good artwork would do too, right? It would like Mm -hmm. inspire this kind of engagement in ways you agree with and also in ways you don't agree with. But I think that that's a very generous position as a writer to be generating content for others to, that would just inspire them to think through or think against but without it being about ego there's still time to make a great meme carly you have so much time <laughs> i i do also feel like though now that things have gotten really like messy for instance like you have a, a lot of people on the left who are very supportive of increased surveillance to maintain health and stop the spread of disease right at least in america like the Dems, the liberals, the wider left, their cause is taking this thing seriously. And the right is really engaged in this magical thinking. And But at, at the same time, us agreeing to increase surveillance ultimately further entrenches like a, a protection of inequality, hmm. right? Oh, it's huh. like we're mm-hmm. priming ourselves to allow the people who got million-dollar bailouts 
You know, in mm-hmm. a way, we're sacrificing an opportunity for revolution by p- being good soldiers in the war against the virus. But a lot of issues that were normally clearly situated in the realm of the left or right also now have kind of gotten tangled together, which is another reason why these d- divisions don't quite function the way they did. Yeah, the the head of the Atlantic Ideas page today is the technology that could free America. It's just about like a tracking app for contact tracing. And it's just been incredible to me how leftists, progressives, liberals, all are embracing like mass surveillance, like just like happily. It's not like the technology is going to stop. (laughs) It's just you are open the door for it to continue on and on and on. I definitely see both sides of this. I mean... Mm. Look at that Palantir has gotten the contract to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just like so scary. You can just kind of assume, especially in America, probably in the UK, the worst possible outcome, like policy wise, is going to happen. Yeah. So we need contact tracing to reopen the economy. I understand the logic there, but it is absolutely going to be abused. And I mean, I don't know how you account for that, honestly. But we've been living, at least in the US, in a police state for. A decade and <laughs> yeah. surveillance there we've been in a state of increased surveillance and surveillance has just been consolidated against the poor first then the lower middle class and then like the consumer of tech so across the board so when you have like theorists of ai who are like there shouldn't be pervasive testing because it's going to feed into biodata or biopolitics that's been happening we're in a continuum but it's incredible like just as you're saying julian like what is being ushered in and what people feel safe ushering in Anything to feel safe. Anything can rush into them. Technology really steps in in that void. I mean, they're even proud of it. Like when I think of people just say with like Fitbits or something, you know, they're the people who like post their stats to like social media, right? They're like Mm. proud of being not just fit, but also like on some brainstem level, like not at risk. It's like a flex, like the sort of tacit racism built into that, into being somebody who would benefit from this technology necessarily. Well, they also don't have enough suffering in their life. So they need to like run marathons, just (laughs) have something, (laughs) something bad and like, right? Because a Fitbit is basically like a masochism tracker. <laughs> True. <laughs> True. There's something very like um, those like self-flagellating monks uh, yeah. about it. So they can feel okay, in like counts the whip strokes, you know. They can demonstrate their care of self. I, I was going to ask a cliched question about a lot of people are getting frustrated that that there doesn't seem to be plans for action coming out of the left right now. Um, at least I haven't really seen them. And I haven't I mean, seen them either. I just feel like they wouldn't be visible. They will be like bubbling around the surface. They're not going to be top down like the counter example, which is a Betsy DeVos funded, mm. you know, rally at the at the Capitol building in Michigan. <laughs> it's not going to look like that. Um, so I don't know what it will look like. Rent strike. But, People I mean, like not leaving their apartment. Right? The rent, also, the rent strike is, is just fizzled. Yeah, that didn't happen. You're right. Like Cheesecake Factory went right. on the rent strike. Staples had a rent strike. Nobody. I, yeah, I, it's not very encouraging. It's definitely not optimistic. But we've seen plenty of people seize the revolutionary moment. It's just Trump not the left. Trump was at calling all. for civil war in Virginia. Yeah, in Michigan and <laughs> like, Minnesota, etc. Exactly. Fuck? No, what the fuck. I think to this point of what the left's organizing strategies will be, when I look at a headline like the technology that could free America, within this space, like refusal is like a first step before like coming up with any like active strategies. I think like just the power of smooth rollout for many apps and programs right now and technologies that are supposed to like solve the crisis is so powerful that 
aside from like political organizing and rent organizing, like that's the space that I am looking at. And I think refusal is like a huge first step. It's just like understanding and being able to identify like that's a neoliberal solution. That's like something that will bring like mass surveillance, like just being able to like pause that and say no. But like that's just one Hmm. In its execution, though, you're going to end up with a patchwork, right? I mean, it's good to have these pockets of resistance for like small community survival, um, but it's going to remain a minority position. When we say resistance, I just think I'm technically Gen X, and I just think of all the people that got offline in the early 2000s when Web 2 was starting, and they probably saved themselves a lot of mental health issues doing that, but like the rest of the world was formed by the platforms are not on. So like, is there any hope for any kind of wider? I mean, I don't know. I don't really know what the end of my question is. I just, other than it's going to lead to patchwork with us being the minority probably, right? Yeah, I think I just realized that the answer I gave to your question was like a tech solutionist answer. And I wanted to like, re- <laughs> wanted to revise that. I Just the expanding one's thinking beyond these like patchwork solutions as you're describing into reconfiguring what a community means online. If we move past cancel culture and move past woke type politics, like what are the different levels on which we can connect like within this space and across all of our like different messy ideological perspectives, there have to be some kind of, there has to be some sort of like framework that we can unify through. I I have a question just it seems like a lot of people who would be refusing those things are libertarians on the right. Uh, and like the same people who are afraid of the Bill Gates vaccine, et cetera. Like there's going to be a lot of people who are skeptical of techno-solutionism, but they're not our natural allies. So how much, how like if people want to refuse Zoom, but for the wrong reasons, because they have some kind of horrible conspiracy theory about it. Do you like, do you encourage that? Like where... Yeah, that's, yeah, where's the line? I mean, this is my question yeah, too. Where's the hard, like, where's the hard line? We, like, Bannon's on Red Scare. Like, um, <laughs> who, his friend check is on Contbot. It's like, but where is the hard line, you know? I mean, <laughs> I think the line is going to dissipate. I had some libertarian years too. We didn't really go into my, into my background at some <laughs> point. I might have written, nice. I might have written some uh, copy for the Libertarian Party, but I'm not gonna. <laughs> Wow. I'll just I'll just leave that. There. I like that secret history. But, <laughs> but I think like if we want to unify against surveillance or authoritarian state, your allies will be people you don't like or enjoy or want to right. spend any time near. But being able to anonymize them to some degree where you don't need to interact with them that much, mm, but can like, like have that. some sort of political force is actually like a very powerful framework. That's super interesting, Nora. That's just a really good point. So something like 4chan. (laughs) Basically. That's it. Yeah, 4chan. Anonymous allies. (laughs) I do think it is interesting, the the sort of alliance of far left anarchists and MAGA, whatever, uh, death cult. Um, (laughs) That is an interesting alternative horseshoe. Even though there's a bit of a rift, but like a lot of Silicon Valley libertarians are absolutely fine with surveillance and kind of authoritarian centralist control, central bank intervention because of the state of exception in this case. And then so are libs, of course, mm-hmm. and lefties. I do think there's two horseshoes there. It's like they're both mad that they, they're being prevented from working on their polar opposite revolutions. Mm-hmm. So they're like, let's get together <laughs> so that we can like actually get this battle started. <laughs> right. 
But um, there's something in, there's like a tempered position in between. I think you can have contact tracing and pervasive testing without feeding into biopolitics or big data if it's, if it's like done well. Right. Um, what would that look like? What's, what, how, how do you, what are the safeguards there? So the first would be what are other ways of contact tracing that don't depend on the scale of like corporate infrastructure. There's localized testing that can be like controlled by citizens or controlled by the community. In Kerala, India, they've had amazing success with contact tracing because in part there are citizen bureaus that like check how the contact tracing is going and make sure like have embedded processes for like erasing data after this is over right. and like making sure it doesn't go anywhere. Like with civilian and like local oversight, you can counter where data goes. There are lots of different like ways to do it. I mean, what is your feelings about the idea that people feel safer with Apple or Google enacting something uh, than the government? It's a really tricky territory in general, but uh, I, I don't know. Is it better to have... I mean, Apple, right, has always fought subpoenas by the FBI, right? Won't give them a backdoor. I mean, is this a time for us to actually, like, trust big tech over the government? Like The distinction between how the government uses our data and how companies amass them, like, they have the blurred to such a degree that the distinction, I think, is, like, not meaningful anymore. And we've also moved past the discussion of, data being gathered to how that data is intervened and selected and then used to frame people within certain political contexts. So, I mean, my concern, and I'm not an activist, I'm not a data activist or a learn to code activist in any, by any means, but from what I see from programmers who've like absconded from these companies and people who work in activist space, it's what happens within a time of fear and a time of panic that allows people to get on board with the selection of data to frame certain people and isolate them and create a code of criminality that didn't exist before mm -hmm. in the in the name of like public safety it's like it's amazing how people switch over to like okay well I wasn't fine with it up until now now I feel fear for my body and my safety and my family so yes go for it like use the data select it but it's, it's a matter of like how that material is used in court and selected and who oversees and like evaluates the narrative of whether it's true or not. So I can imagine that with contact tracing, you could have someone who had to go to work and um, came in contact with people that they didn't even realize they came in contact with because they had to go to work. And then that material can be taken out to criminalize someone when they're just doing their job. But who would intervene in that case if someone is already marginalized to like put in the narrative of like this was not like intentional harm. So it's a matter of like, it's not just the data being gathered, it's how it's interpreted and narrated and used. I also, I'm not sure that like community local organizations are like the, the answer. It's, it's who's the intermediary who checks like how data is interpreted. Um, is there anything that you have written just super recently or that's coming out that we should watch out for? Yeah, I'm, I'm finishing a small book that I started last summer called The Artificial and the Real. And it's about mind mapping and simulations and artificial colors. And we should look at that. Art, wait, artificial colors? Artificial colors, like the history of like paint 
the history of like specifically blue, the color wh- blue. What? Oh, you were just we speaking were just out about this today. We were just talking about it today <laughs> about structural color and those metallic berries from Africa. Yeah. Yeah, which are used to yeah, you can extract paint from. Is that what you're talking about? The, well, they're they're these blue berries from Africa, and they're they're metallic, but the color's structural. It's not a pigment. Yeah, that's part of this is part of what I'm writing on. Whoa. But also how uh, artificial colors have like bled into our language of the natural world and sort of tracking and tracing that. So uh. that'll be done in June. And who's publishing it? It's Art Metropole, which is uh, based in Toronto. Cool. Polia condensata. That's the name of the berry. The the metallic, uh, also sometimes called the marble berry. It's it's like physically reflect refracts the light in, mm-hmm. in, to give color. It's not like an element or a no, molecule. right, right. It's right. like a, it's like I don't know. We read get, check check out Nora's book for the full <laughs> the real history of this. <laughs> yeah, it, it'll be up in the summer. Okay, y'all. Awesome. This was this was really lovely. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Nora. Thank you very much for um, spending your afternoon with us. And sorry, (laughs) we probably used to. I bet at some point there was a. I I came across a a gravestone in a field somewhere that said, "Nora died of dysentery." (laughs) Because because we played organ trail in Miss Hormel's class. Right. That's amazing. Can that be the like cover image? Really? <laughs> Can we find this somewhere? <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> no. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well. <laughs> Number munchers. It's all coming back. Good time. Two e's. Okay. Well, we'll we'll talk again soon then. Okay. okay. Thanks. Sounds, sounds good. <laughs> it's nice Bye. to see you. Thank you, you Nora. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Nora. You're welcome. Thank Bye. you. All right. Bye. 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 <laughs> Thank you for listening to the New Models Podcast, and thank you, Nora Khan, for coming on the show. You can keep pace with Nora's writing at noranahidkhan.com. For all New Models content, including our unfiltered Topsoil podcast and access to our Discord, join the New Models community at patreon.com slash newmodels. As always, you can reach us via our main site, newmodels.io. See you next episode.